so one day, very early in his ministry, the Lord was walking along the shore of the Sea of Galilee, and it was a very special day because this day the Lord was on a mission to find some of the guys who would become his disciples. And you guys know the story. As he walked, he saw two brothers in a boat mending their nets because they were fishermen, and their names were James and John. The author of the letter that we've been studying now for a couple of months. This is John, early on in Jesus' ministry. Jesus walks up to their boat, and he says two words. He's been saying the same two words for 2,000 years, and he's saying it to some of you this morning. Follow me. Follow me. And immediately, I love the response of the brothers, immediately, they, the Bible says they left their nets and they followed the Lord Jesus Christ. So for the next three years or so, James and John, they had a front seat to watch the most amazing ministry ever in the history of mankind. I mean, they got to follow around the Lord Jesus Christ. They got to listen to his amazing sermons. They got to watch his amazing miracles take place before their eyes. We're talking about deaf people hearing and blind people seeing and mute people speaking and paralyzed people right walking. They got to witness all of this and they got to personally experience Christ's love for them. And ladies and gentlemen, that changed John. We know that that changed John because over 50 years from the time that Jesus said, follow me, John, over 50 years later when he penned the Gospel of John, right around AD 85 to AD 90, we're not sure exactly where, but here's what he does. Over and over in the Gospel of John, you saw this last year, over and over he refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loves. Not once, not twice, not three times. <laughs> I think it was four times. Over and over. The disciple whom Jesus loves. You see, Christ's love, experienced by John in a personal way, changed his identity. I wonder if when we get to home to heaven one day, if we introduce ourselves to John. You know, hey, John, I'm Mike. Very nice to meet you. I wonder if he's gonna say, hi, I'm John the one the Lord loves. Welcome to heaven, right? It changed him. Christ's love changed his identity. Christ's love changed his entire life. And what a change it was. We did this in the first message when we kicked off the book, but when you compare the young man, John, with the elderly apostle who wrote five books in your New Testament, ladies and gentlemen, the difference there is like night and day. In the early years, Jesus called John and his brother James, you remember this, the sons of thunder. <laughs> Why did Jesus call them that? Well, probably because of their passion and their zeal. But there was a problem with James and John as young men. They had zeal without knowledge. And zeal without knowledge, that can be a dangerous combination. Zeal without knowledge, well, that will cause somebody to misrepresent the Lord. And we saw that in Luke chapter nine, right? When a certain Samaritan village did not welcome Jesus into their town, hey, we don't want him here, go away. Do you remember what John said to Jesus? Lord, do you want us to call down fire on those people? 
It's like, wow, talk about zeal. Yeah, a lot of zeal, but not, at all, not a lot of knowledge. So what did Jesus, how did Jesus respond to that? He rebuked John and James. He said, quote, you don't know what spirit you are of. I didn't come to destroy people's lives, but to save them. And then in Mark chapter 9, when there's a guy who's not an apostle and he's casting out G demons in Jesus' name, right? John sees this and John actually goes up and he tries to stop the guy. And so later on, Jesus wasn't there. Later on, he reports back to the Lord. He says, Lord, there was this guy and he was casting out demons in your name and I tried to stop him. Why, John? Because he wasn't following us. In other words... This guy's not part of our group. And how did Jesus respond to that? Jesus said, I quote, he who is not against us is for us. In other words, John, take a chill pill. <laughs> it's gonna be okay. Calm down a little bit. So when John was young, right, he was angry. He was often divisive to the point that Sometimes he actually wanted to hurt people instead of help people. Now, can we apply this real quick before I move on? Total silence. All right, I'll just move on then. No, I gotta apply it. That's part of my job as a pastor and a preacher. So let me, let me share this with you, that some people within the Calvary Chapel Port St. Lucie family, here's what, what's going on. Sometimes you guys and gals, you watch the news and it makes you really angry. And I just wanna say, be careful that you don't become like the young man John. You say, well, pastor, I don't like what's going on in this nation, and it's righteous anger. Okay. But just know that there's a fine line between righteous anger and getting in the flesh. So be very careful, right? Be very careful. And so here's what I know that a lot of people, they, like, they would rather hurt people than help people. And when you watch any, as far as I know, any cable news network, here's what happens. They're hurting people. And the way they're hurting people is they're calling them all kinds of names. It's like little kids in school. It's like, what are you doing? Ladies and gentlemen, why are we as Christians imitating them? Well, I just get mad. Okay, you get mad, but does, does that mean that you gotta hurt people by calling them certain names because they don't belong to your political party? Here's what I know at Calvary. Number one, our identity is that we're followers of Jesus Christ. Way down here somewhere is our political affiliation. Yeah, I got half the crowd to clap for that one, right? Because here's what's sad. What's sad is that some of you guys you watch the news, you get in the flesh, and all of a sudden your political affiliation comes over the fact that you're a follower of Jesus Christ. And you gotta stop, you gotta quit doing that because zeal without knowledge will misrepresent the Lord. You're not helping anything, you're hurting stuff. Okay, and so here's, and somebody came to me after the service yesterday and um, they said, well, I just get angry. And I'm like, yeah, I get angry too. So here's what I wanted to do. Here's your assignment. 
before you watch your news, watch your news, stay up on what's going on in the world, but before you watch your news, set your alarm five minutes, six, uh, ten minutes before, and I want you, before you watch the news, to open up the Bible to Matthew 5, 6, and 7 and read all those red letters. Read the Sermon on the Mount. And then, after you get the attitude and the spirit of Jesus Christ towards people, because how many of you guys know that people need Jesus? Right? All people need Jesus. And by the way, the answer is not politics. The answer is Jesus Christ. He's the one that changes us from the inside out. And so what happens is you'll read the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, Matthew 6, Matthew 7, then watch your news. Then you'll be able, number one, to see how ridiculous some of these people are by calling everybody names that don't agree with them. But then number two, you'll have the right attitude of how to handle these types of things. Now, I know truth is truth, and I know there's some people that are harming our nation, and so I encourage you to vote, and I want you to go and vote, and I want you to go and vote your values, but as you do that, don't ever forget this. You are an ambassador of Jesus Christ, so represent him well. Represent him well. None of that at all was in my notes. I just give it all for free. All right, so John, when he was a young man, he's angry, right? He's divisive, and then all of a sudden, you find out that later in life he changed to the point where a lot of theologians and church fathers call him the apostle of love. You read 1 John and love is dripping off the pages and it's written by the guy who used to be angry and divisive. So what happened? How did the son of thunder become the apostle of love? Well, here's how. Number one, John knew how deeply he was loved by Jesus Christ. I'm the one who Jesus loved. He experienced Christ's love. It wasn't just in his head. It went down to his heart and then lived out in his feet, right? But he experienced Christ's love to the point that it changed his identity. And so I wonder, do you really know that Jesus loves you? Is it just in your head or have you allowed it to go down into your heart? Do you know that you know that you know that you know that God loves you. You say, Pastor, you don't know what I've done. Well, I'll repeat myself. God loves you. No matter what you've done, Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. God can't change. He loves you. Second of all, at some point, John was born again through authentic faith in Jesus Christ. And this matter of faith, this topic of faith was so important to him that 98 times in the Gospel of John, he writes the word believe, or at least a form of the word believe. Believe, 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 Gospel of John. And so at some point, he's born again through faith in Christ, but then after he got saved, look at number three, he made a daily choice to abide in Christ. And where did he learn that from? He learned that from the Lord himself. John was in the upper room on the night Jesus was betrayed. And John heard him say this, abide in me and I in you. As a branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. 
John heard that in the upper room and it absolutely changed him and he realized that I'm a branch and Jesus is the vine and I need to be bearing fruit. Regarding this whole idea of fruit bearing, uh, Dr. Charles Swindoll said this. He said, if a branch of a tree is connected to the root and trunk system, the sap of the tree will flow through the branch. Right, we know this. We know that's the reason that um, sap is in trees is because the sap carries the nutrients and the minerals to help that tree to be healthy. Well, what's the application? Well, here it is. If a man or a woman is truly connected to a loving father through the son, by the indwelling spirit, the love of God will, not maybe, but will flow through his or her life toward others. And I love that because John was connected to the love of the father through faith in his son by the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit in his life. John as the branch remained in Christ. He was abiding in Christ. What does that mean? That means that he continued after he got saved. He continued to trust Christ every day. He continued to depend on Christ every day. He continued, right, to rely on Jesus Christ every single day. And as he did that, the sap of God's love continued to flow into John, the branch, and it yielded the fruit of the Spirit, which is love. And that's what needs to happen in our lives as well. You say, I got born again in 1963. Praise the Lord. I'm so glad for you, brother. Are you abiding in Christ today? Because if you're not abiding in Christ today, here's what I know. Agape love is not flowing through you to others. And so what does this apostle of love exhort us to do? Well, it shouldn't be surprising that he says this now in verse seven, okay? So if you're looking at 1 John chapter four, verse seven, can you please say amen? amen? Okay, so here we go. He says, beloved, let us love one another. Not surprising. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Obviously, the inference there is if you've been born again, truly born again by the Spirit of God, your life produces love. But, verse eight, anyone who does not love does not know God. Why? Because God is love. All right, so in the original Greek, John used the word agape for love. We already defined this earlier, but agape Love simply means a faithful commitment to, can everybody shout out the word give? Give. Not get, give. A faithful commitment to give sacrificially to another. As I was praying for our church this morning before I came here for the first service, I was praying, God, please deliver us at Calvary PSL from the American consumer Christian mindset. God, deliver us from this whole attitude of serve me, 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 me. Deliver us from this attitude of where we treat the church like we treat a restaurant or a bank or a gym or some other company that, that is there to serve us. God, help us to realize um, that we come to church not to get, but to give. God, help us to come to church, number one, 
to glorify your name because you're worthy of it, whether it's raining or not. Help us to come to church, number two, to serve other people. Help us to come to church, number three, to be discipled in your word. And then, Lord, number four, help us to come to church to get something out of it for ourselves. The problem is, in, in, in the West, in America, consumer Christianity, they take number four and they put it as number one. And you better give me a positive experience in the parking lot or I'm gonna be hopping mad. And you better have a donut for me waiting. And the coffee better taste right and I don't want to mess around when I want to come in here trying to squeeze in. The person, I don't want to squeeze in. They can go somewhere else and sit. I need some room here. And the AC better just be perfect, right? So I can, and if not, I'm going to go down the street to another church. Consumer, <laughs> I didn't say it. Consumer Christianity. No, 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 no. That's not agape love. That's called selfishness. And we got to get out of the nursery and grow up because life's not all about us. Life's not all about us. It's not. Okay, and so what is agape love? It's a faithful commitment to, please say the word, give. Give sacrificially to another. How do you know? Because God so loved the world. God so agape the world that he gave his one and only son. And so where does love come from? Well, we just read it in verse seven, right? Beloved, let us love, agape, one another, for love, agape, is from God. And so if you've been born again by the Spirit of God, here's what I know. The Spirit of God lives inside of you. You are a temple of the Holy Spirit. And whenever that day was when the Holy Spirit came inside of you, he brought a gift. It's the gift of agape love. It is the gift of a God's faithful, sacrificial love for you. That is inside of you. But God never meant for his agape love to remain bottled up in you and me. He wants that agape love to flow out, to come out of our lives like fruit comes out of a tree. That's why the Lord said, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. And so if you right now are abiding in Jesus Christ, then here's what I know. The sap of God's love, so to speak, his spiritual nutrients and his spiritual minerals are flowing into you, the branch. And what is that going to yield? That's gonna yield not a little bit of fruit, that's gonna yield a lot of fruit from the branch of your life. And the fruit of the Spirit is love. Now does the orange tree, if you have an orange tree in your backyard, does the orange tree give out oranges for itself? No, the orange tree gives oranges for you so you can have freshly squeezed orange juice and get vitamin C in your body and, and, and build up your immune system, you see? And so the, the fruit of the Spirit is love, so it's not meant to be bottled up inside. We're abiding in Jesus Christ, and it's popping out of us. Why? For our good? No, 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 for the good of others, for the good of your spouse, your kids and grandkids and coworkers and neighbors so that they can see God's love in action in your life. Now, if you're not born again, it's impossible for you to abide in Christ. And if you're not abiding in Christ, there's no agape love. Isn't that what he says in verse eight? He says, anyone who does not love, agape, does not 
know God. So what's the truth there? If you really know God, if you've truly been born again by the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit's in you, agape love is in you, and you're going to love others. And I know that love is going to ebb and flow based on you and I abiding in Jesus Christ. Anyone who does not love does not know God because, last three words in verse 8, God is love. God is love. And so please notice that John said God is love. He didn't say love is God. And that's a really, really important distinction. Regarding that distinction, Dr. Charles Ryrie said this, the presence of the article before God, and so if you can read Greek and you have a Greek New Testament, and right now you're reading in 1 John chapter 4, it will say in the Greek, the God is love. And so the presence of the article, the, before God, literally the God is love, shows that the statement is not reversible. Sorry for the spelling error, reversible. But it shows, right, the God is love, shows that the statement is not reversible. It cannot read, love is God. Now that's very important, so that nobody gets the wrong idea that this impersonal force that someone calls love, well, that's God, right? It's an impersonal force. Like, may the force be with you. Well, ladies and gentlemen, that's fantasy. God is not impersonal. God is personal. God is one God, eternally existent in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and he is love. So God is love, yes. Love is God, no. Does this make sense to you guys? Okay, so what does it mean that God is love? It means that his very nature, his very essence is pure, perfect love. And so let me get a little theological here and then we'll get back to it. But I want you to stay with me. So theologians, I'm talking about theologians in the line of guys like Augustine and Anselm and um, Thomas Aquinas. Not that we agree with everything these guys ever preached, but theologians in that line. Um, they speak of God's simplicity. They say that God is a simple being. Now, they're not saying that he has a lack of intellect, right? Because God is omniscient. God knows everything. God is omnisapient. He's all wise. Okay, and so simple doesn't mean simple in regard to his intellect. No, God's simplicity refers to the fact that God is absolutely one. He's absolutely one. God is not made up of parts. Because if God was made up of parts, he could come apart. God is one, absolutely one. Therefore, his perfections, his attributes are one with his undivided nature. What does that mean? That means that God's very essence is pure love. But it also means that God's very essence is holiness, perfect, pure Holiness. What are the angels right now crying out in the presence of God day and night? Holy, holy, 
Holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And so God is absolutely one. His perfections are one with his undivided nature. In other words, God is not part love and part holy. He's full love and he's full holiness. He's perfect love and he's perfect holiness. Some people read the Old Testament and they think, wow, God is holy. But then they read the New Testament and they say, wow, God is so loving. Did he change? Did God change? No. Malachi 3, I am the Lord. I do not change. This is another theological word. This is the immutability of God. He can't change. And since he's immutable, he remains the same in every age. The same God of the Old Testament is the exact same God of the New Testament. That means that he is pure love and perfect holiness in the Old Testament, and he is pure love and perfect holiness in the New Testament, and right now, he's still pure love and perfect holiness. Now, that is good news for us, but it's also bad news for us. It's good news that God is love. Here's why. Because he can't stop loving you. He just can't stop loving you. Again, you say, I don't know, you don't know what, what I've done. God cannot stop loving you. God has loved you with an everlasting love. And that's really good news. The bad news is not that he's holy and just. We praise God that he's holy, and we praise God that he is a just judge. The bad news for us is because he's holy, he must judge our sin. He has to. Ladies and gentlemen, you gotta, you gotta grasp this. God is holy. That is his essence. God is just. That is his essence. And God is immutable. He cannot change. What does that mean? That means he has to judge your sin. And he has to judge my sin. And so how in the world did God reconcile his love toward us, not willing that any should perish, right, that all, but that all should come to repentance? How in the world did he reconcile his love for us, that he wants to save everybody with his justice towards us, the fact that he has to judge us for our sins? How does he reconcile that? Well, the answer is in verse 9 and 10. Look at verse 9. He says, in this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved God. Please don't believe the lie that one day you woke up and you decided to love God and get saved. <laughs> God loved you first. So in this is love, verse 10, not that we love God, but that he loved us. And here's the answer to the question, sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So how in the world did God reconcile his great love, his great mercy uh, for us, wanting to save everybody, and yet his perfect, pure holiness, the fact as a just judge, he has got to judge us for our sins. Here's how he reconciled it. He sent his one and only son to be the propitiation for our sins. Okay, so what is propitiation? Propitiation is an offering 
that turns away or satisfies. Can you guys please say the word satisfies? That's the idea of propitiation. It's an offering that turns away or satisfies divine wrath against us. And so God, again, he's a just judge. He will not just wink at your sin and let you get away with it. God is a just judge, and he has given the sentence for all humanity. The sentence can be summed up in three very familiar verses in the book of Romans. Verse number one, there's none righteous, no, not one. You say, I'm a good person. Please put your hands down. You're not a good person. You are a liar. There's none righteous, no, not one. Bottom line, none of us are good. And the bottom line is you know that. You know that you're a sinner. And so there's none righteous, no, not one. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And then number three, you guys know this. For the wages of sin is death. That's physical death when your body gives out and you're dead. And that's spiritual death because your soul is immortal and it will live in one of two places forever, heaven or hell. And spiritual death is not annihilation. Ladies and gentlemen, God respects and honors his image bearers, the ones that he has made in his image. He's not gonna snuff out his image bearers. Eternal death is not annihilation. Eternal death is eternal separation from your creator. That's the bad news. The good news, thank God for the good news, is the rest of the verse. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's the good news. That's the best news of all. The good news is that Christ, the Word, the eternal Word, manifests himself by taking on a human body. God became man, and he went to the cross, and on the cross, he was the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Why? To propitiate, to satisfy, to turn away God's wrath, which was against us. Because of his perfect life, which he lived for us, never sinning one time, and because of his substitutionary death, which he died in our place. Ladies and gentlemen, God's justice has forever been satisfied. Yeah, we should thank God for that. God's sense of justice, the fact that he has to punish sin, he has to judge sin, that is forever satisfied because of the cross of Calvary. And so somebody once said brilliantly that God's love and mercy and God's justice and holiness kissed at the cross of Calvary, and we are the benefactors of that. It's such good news. And so does this mean that everybody's going to be saved? Does this mean that everybody's going to be saved? I mean, think about it. Jesus Christ died for the whole world. He paid for the sins of the whole world right there on the cross of Calvary. And so God's justice, his wrath against humanity has been forever satisfied because of what Christ did on the cross. But does that mean that everybody is going to be saved? Well, that's what the universalists will try to tell you, but they're wrong. Ladies and gentlemen, here's what you need to know. Only those who turn to Christ 
in genuine repentance and faith will be saved. Now, here's how it works. You see the cross. There's a shadow. I'm speaking metaphorically, obviously, right now. If you are never been born again by the Spirit of God, you have no interest in what I'm talking about right now. Right? You're living your own life, doing your own thing. I don't know about this God stuff. Right? Here's what I know. John chapter 3 says this. The wrath of God abides on you. Not that it will abide on you. That will happen if you don't turn. But it abides on you in the present. But if you will do this, if you will turn to Jesus Christ in genuine repentance and faith, what is faith? Faith is a heartfelt confidence and trust that relies on Christ alone. If you will put your faith in Jesus Christ, metaphorically speaking, you will walk into the shadow of the cross out here wrath of God in here underneath the shadow of the cross guess what Jesus Christ once for all absorbed the wrath of God in your place you see how that works this is how it works once and for all he is our atoning sacrifice and so when God looks down at us he doesn't see sinners if you've been born again he doesn't see sinners he sees his son. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus Christ and his righteousness. And so regarding those who reject the Lord, he's not gonna force himself on anybody. Regarding this, one of my uh, personal heroes in the faith, Dr. Norman Geisler, if you wanna go deeper in theology than you are right now, this is a guy I recommend. Okay, he says, quote, a God of complete love cannot force anyone to act against his will. Forced love is intrinsically impossible. A loving God can work persuasively, but not coercively. It is not morally right to force moral beings against their will. God is all loving, and as such, cannot coerce free choices. And so the question is, why doesn't God just save everybody? The answer is because not everybody wants to be saved. Plain and simple. I want you to imagine that a man is attracted to a woman, and so he starts to get to know her, and then he asks her out, and they go on a date, and then they go on several dates. He's starting to fall for her, so what does he do? He starts sending her cards, love notes, and flowers. And so, so far, so good. No harm, no foul. And then things progress, and one day, he pops the question. She has no idea, but he's, there he is. All of a sudden, he's on his knee, and he's asking her to marry him. And she looks down at him, and she says, oh, man. look, I can't. Thank you this is hard, but no thank you. I've decided I'm gonna move on with my life without you. He's devastated. She moves on, talk about awkward. He moves on, but he's so smitten with her. What does he do? He keeps trying. 
He sends another love note, two, three. He sends more cards. He sends more flowers. And so finally, she texts him, and she says, thank you for, all, for sending me all these things. But look, and then in all caps, I'm serious. Stop pursuing me. Now still, up to this point, no harm, no foul. Unless the guy in his heart thinks, I will not take no for an answer. And then all of a sudden, he starts to show up unexpectedly wherever she is. She's at Starbucks getting her latte. She looks over, there he is sitting over there. And then she's one day walking in the mall. She looks at American Eagle, and there he is at the cash register smiling at her, <laughs> buying some clothes. And then she goes out to the parking lot, and there he is again. And this time he walks up to her, kind of corners her at her car. And he says this. He says, you know what? You don't get it right now, but you're going to thank me later. I'm going to force you to love me. Now, first, he was acting persuasively. Cards, notes, flowers, right? Nothing wrong with that. That's great. But now he crossed the line. Now he's acting coercively, and that's not fine. That is not great. In fact, that is morally wrong. In fact, that's creepy. <laughs> and so now, with all due respect, here's what you need to know. God is not a creep. Just the opposite. God is pure love. He's perfect love. He's all love. What does that mean? That means that he will act persuasively. How many of you guys are glad that he acts persuasively in our lives? All raise two hands. Thank you, Jesus. He will act persuasively, but he will never act coercively. Ladies and gentlemen, that goes against his very nature. Coercion is sin. God can't sin. If someone continues to reject him, far from forcing himself on them, here's what he's going to do. He's going to honor their choice. And like a gentleman, he's going to move on. Now, what does this tell us about the reality of hell? Because some of you have seen it on the internet or YouTube where people are so arrogant. They're so prideful. And they're calling God a moral monster on the, on the plane of, at the level of Adolf Hitler, because the God of the Bible made this place called hell where people are going forever and ever and ever. And I, I, I read this stuff and I see this stuff and it breaks my heart because these people think they know better than God. They think they know more than God. They think they're more moral than God to cast judgment on the God of the Bible. Ladies and gentlemen, our brains are like little tiny peas compared to the omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent, omnibenevolent, eternal, sovereign, creator and sustainer of the universe. We're nothing. Who are we to stand in judgment of God? Jesus preached more on hell than he did on heaven because he knew it's a reality. Jesus had no problem with the doctrine of hell because he knew it was real. And so what does the reality of hell teach us? It teaches us, number one, that God is holy. 
That is his essence. He's a just judge. It teaches us, number two, that the wages of sin is really death. And it teaches us, number three, that man has a free will. And finally, the reality of hell teaches us that God honors our choices. He's not gonna coerce anybody to love him. It goes against pure love. Persuasive, yes. Coercive, manipulative, no. So yes, there's a place called hell. Why well, is don't understand. God, God could just you know, save everybody. No, not everybody wants to be saved. I'm reading a great book right now called The Case for Faith by Lee Strobel. And um, in this book, The Case for Faith, uh, he interviews all these different theologians to go against the objections to historical biblical Christianity. And so he's got a whole chapter on the reality of hell. And one of the theologians that he interviews says this, quote, hell is not a place where people are consigned because they were pretty good blokes but just didn't believe the right stuff. No, they're consigned there first and foremost because they defy their maker and want to be at the center of the universe. Hell is not filled with people who have repented Speaking about after they go to hell that they repent. They repent, right? Hell is not filled with people who have repented, only God isn't good enough to let them out. No, it is filled with people who for all eternity still want to be at the center of their universe, center of the universe, and who persist in their God-defying rebellion. C.S. Lewis famously said, the gates of hell are locked from the inside. And so ladies and gentlemen, hell's real. But why in the world would you go and pay for your sins in hell when God so loved you, he sent his one and only son who paid it all on the cross of Calvary? Why in the world? Why in the world? Why in the world? Look at verse 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. He keeps saying it over and over. Verse 12, no one has ever seen God. No one has ever seen God? Nope. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. So the reason no one has ever seen God is because he's invisible. The Apostle Paul talked about this. He said, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever, amen. And so how in the world can an, a needy world see an invisible God? They can't. It's absolutely impossible unless that God, because he's love, makes a decision to manifest himself by taking on a human body. Then people can see God then people can experience the love of God. And that is what the incarnation is all about, ladies and gentlemen. In the beginning was the Word, the eternal Word, Christ, the eternal Son of God. In the beginning was the Word, was the Word, before the creation of the space-time material universe. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 14, and the Word became flesh 
and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glory as of the only uh, begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. How in the world can a needy world see an invisible God? They can't. It's impossible. Unless that God who is love manifests himself by taking on a human body. And we are so glad the Son of God was born of the Virgin Mary and became man. We are so glad that he lived a perfect, sinless life for us. We're so glad that he performed authentic, real miracles for us so we would know that he is the Christ. We're so glad that he died a substitutionary death for our sins, for us. We're so glad that he rose bodily from the grave, for us. We're so glad that he ascended into heaven, for us. We're so glad, we're so thankful every day, whether we feel like it or not, we ought to have attitudes of gratitude. Thank you, God, you manifested yourself by taking on a human body and coming and being with us, paying for our sins, rising again the third day. And then look at this, Jesus ascended back into heaven. There he goes. Oh, he's gone. Now how in the world is the world gonna see the love of God? Jesus is gone. How's the world gonna see the love of God? The answer is in verse 12. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. And so regarding this, Warren Wiersbe said, people can't see God, but they can see us. You guys see it? If we abide in Christ, we will love one another and our love for one another will reveal God's love to a needy world. God's love will be experienced in us and then will be expressed through us. How can a needy world see God's love? Through you and through me. They'll know we are Christians by our love, by our love. Yes, they'll know we are Christians by our love. And so in closing, how did the Son of Thunder become the apostle of love? Here's how. John knew how deeply He was loved by Jesus Christ. I wonder, do you know that? Do you know that you know that you know? No matter what you've done, God loves you. Secondly, John was born again at some point through authentic faith in Jesus Christ. Question, have you been born again? Or are you just religious? Have you been made new by the Spirit of God through authentic faith in Jesus Christ? And then number three, After he got saved, John made a daily choice to abide in Christ, to keep depending, keep relying, keep trusting in Jesus Christ. The question is, are you making, Christian, that daily choice to abide in Jesus? Because if you will, like John, you're gonna change. You're gonna bear fruit. The fruit of love, the fruit of agape love is gonna come out of you. And you know who's gonna benefit? Husbands, your wife, your home is going to be bright. Why? Agape love's flowing through you. And, and wives, your husbands, they're going to see that agape love. And your kids, you know how great it is when kids get to grow up in a Christ-centered home that's filled with agape love? And your grandkids, and your neighbors, and your coworkers, and your friends, and the brothers and sisters in Christ here at Calvary, they're going to see the love, and they're, know, they're, going to, they're going to know that we're Christians by 
our love.